monsters, madness, and magic. All right, welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. I'm Justin, and I'm joined by my co-hosts Daniel, Angelique, and Jason. And today, everyone, we have a very special treat for all of you. Writer, producer, and director of the upcoming adaption of Clive Barker's Books of Blood, which premieres on on Hulu on October 7th, Mr. Brandon Braga. Brandon, how you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. So, Brandon, what was your eureka moment when you were a kid that just sent you on the roller coaster ride you're on now? <laughs> you know... It was probably a series of eureka moments, all involving sitting in movie theaters, which I miss terribly, and I hope they come back. Without question, the real crystalline moment for me when I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker. Now, I was sitting, when I was like 12 years old, I was was sitting in the theater watching John Carpenter's Halloween and watching the audience reaction and thinking, wow, this is great. I want to make these kinds of movies. I want to make good most ambition was but movie I ever saw when I was six years old was Tales from the Crypt which is an, an anthology horror film first movie I ever saw in a, in a theater was Tales from the Crypt when I was far too young to see it mm. in like 1972 and that was an anthology horror film and my first love is always I guess the first thing I wanted to do when I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker is I wanted to make horror movies. And it was a long time getting around to it, but uh, here I am. It's funny you say that because the reaction we we usually get when we have guests is horror is the easy way in for them. And that's just kind of why they jump into a horror movie, but you actually wanted to make horror initially. Yes. I just always loved being scared and scaring people and suspense, especially, and really got into Hitchcock movies. And and, um, I thought Halloween was the kind of movie I wanted to make you know it was it wasn't just about it was a slasher movie one of the first but I just wanted to make good movies mm-hmm. and I recognized even at a young age that this Carpenter movie was different it was well made but no I don't look at horror as an easy way in I think it's really hard to make good horror okay. it is it, it's, it's I, hard I completely agree because it's a you know it's like and I'm sure comedy must be the same way but the problem with horror, horror can get silly real quick how do you make something really ridiculous scary have you have you guys seen books of blood yet did they give you a link or anything i did yes i did thank you very much okay okay cool so there's stuff in this movie that's kind of borderline absurdist and you just got to keep it grounded and otherwise it can just i love that it appears you're you're sitting you're literally in a closet No, I hear hear people saying yeah let's get my closet to record something but like you really are in a closet Quite literally, yeah. Well, I have to. I've been doing a lot of vocal work lately, so yeah, I just oh, love everything here. Cool. <laughs> you have a great voice. Wow, thank you. Damn, Mr. Braga <laughs> and then dude D. Wallace was like talking about my laugh the other. Like she was vamping mm. me hard. Oh, yeah. took, like normally it's the other way around. It's like the, the Daniel Charm is merciless, and like yeah. I can get even. But she like did a total one eighty on me, and like had me sit there and flustered and stuff. So sorry. It's just about D Wallace. It's about Brandon Braga. <laughs> oh, I love. <laughs> if she'd have complimented you. It would have completely derailed your podcast too. Trust me. Oh, I know. <laughs> By the way, she has in, in 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 terms of movie screams. She has one of the best all times the howling howling at the end absolutely of yeah. and i think even more importantly when she's attacked in cujo dog is biting her her screams during that are so terrifying and just agonizing you just really feel her you know did you ever see that yeah oh real whoa 
Yeah. That was my first movie in theater. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Dang, yeah. See, I, didn't, I saw that a couple years after the theatrical stuff. It, that one never really phased me as much. But, uh, no, it's interesting. I wanted to touch back whenever you said your anthology is in, like, the Twilight Zone and stuff. So did you, ever, did you watch a lot of horror anthologies? Or I'm just kind of wondering, is that the reason for Books of Blood or other than the fact that you just feel like writing Books of Blood? You feel well, like doing a film about that. I think it, the answer is both. Um, mm -hmm. There aren't that many anthologies. Sadly, um, yes. And some are better than others. Um, I certainly, Twilight Zone was a huge influence as the, the best TV anthology, which was a lot of horror, a lot of mm -hmm. other things too. When I read Books of Blood in the mid-80s, mid to late 80s, when they first came out, all six volumes released at the same time, which would be like the Beatles releasing their albums all in one day. <laughs> um and uh, they were just so imaginative and transgressive in terms of subject matter, but also the imagery. You know, there were, there were no vampires, there were no werewolves, there were no foggy graveyards. Like, all of any horror trope that you ever thought of was not in these books. They were new ideas, and they were amazing. And I fantasized in the back of my mind what a cool um, TV anthology the books would blood would make one day and in fact initially when i optioned when fox or fox disney now optioned the books um it was for a tv anthology but as we developed it uh hulu and i realized you know this would make a better anthological film and it was indeed to me the best version of these stories there's one story from the books and there are two stories that clive and i concocted our uh together ah and, okay um, yeah, he was more interested in talking about new new books of blood stories he had not yet written because I mean these he wrote these stories 30 years ago he's sick of talking about them. Right. Like I know we had to use this central framing device story and then there were two new ideas that he had that I thought oh these are great and um and that's what we did. I wanted to ask I was specifically hell since we're here. I I wanted to ask about that is it's been a while since I've read those books but these stories that you did and again, for all of you playing along at home, you'll get no spoilers from me. You could go out and see the movie yourself. But the stories in there, I was like, wait a minute, this didn't happen in the book. Now, I saw the parallels of what was from the book, but the, it, I was just kind of wondering, it's like, so where did these come from? It's like, wow. So Barker just let you write some new stories or you know, I didn't know that Cl I didn't pay attention to like the credit lines or yeah. anything of that. So well, I think Clive Barker wrote them, huh? I, I know Clive and I sat starting about, I want to say two and a half years ago, we started getting together every Tuesday afternoon at three o'clock. For some reason, that was our time. And just talking about what stories would be um, in the television show and what stories then might be in the movie. And there's this um, one story that is the first story of the first volume of the Books of Blood that is one of the stories. There's another story that Clive was telling me about this based on a true story about a, an Airbnb from hell. <laughs> Um, that happened in England um, that I was like, okay, this is a frightening tale. And so that's <laughs> how that started. And then there was another story about the concept of a haunted neighborhood. Now you've seen a haunted house. Have you, what, what about a, a whole neighborhood that's been rendered haunted almost like, and, and this one house is almost like the epicenter of Chernobyl, you know, it's the hot zone. And that evolved into one of the stories. And then, uh, my sometime writing partner, Adam Simon, and I 
went off and wrote the screenplay. But they originated with Clive. Huh. I like there's a grounding to the story. Is, is, it's a unique trait. It's actually talking before the podcast started. It's Barker, of course, everybody said it ad nauseum about how unique Barker's writing. And truth be told, because he is quite unique. But Barker has a style where he describes anybody can sit there and write a lurid scene in a book. But Barker has a peculiar way of framing it to make you enjoy it and then be disgusted that you were interested in reading that. Nobody else, and I remember, because I specifically remember the opening story for Books of Blood, where Clive Barker, he describes the dangling penis of the boy as he's inverted on his hands, like going to, I was like, wow, if anybody else wrote that in a book, I don't know if anybody else, I don't know if you could kind of go with the flow. And then when I'm reading it too, it's like, wow, if anybody else had wrote that in a book, I don't know if I'd continue reading this, but... I say that to say that in the film, you also have certain sequences. It Now that I think back to it, I can actually see Barker's hand in that yeah. and writing well, that because there were some uncomfortable things as well. Well, that sequence that you're describing, which is a character who is being inscribed upon, mm -hmm. his flesh is like the book. He becomes the book of blood. If you've read the story, you know that. If you haven't mm -hmm. seen the movie, you'll see how. Um, and it was important to me to bring the imagery that Clive described to life, including just full frontal male nudity had to be there. And there's a big a, a shot from overhead as Simon is being hovering in midair, bloody, that is full on graphic, where every square inch of his body is written on, from his genitals to his the whites of his eyes to his fingernail. And um, didn't get any pushback on that. It was the you know, I was able to just kind of go for it. And I think Clive's work um, has an erotic component, a psychosexual component to it at times. Um, at times it's quite graphic and gory, but his stories as a whole, what appeals to me about them is they're uh, psychological. Mm -hmm. You know, these, there's always some strong psychological horror to all of this. You know, not every story is Hellraiser, which is what he, most people think. Um, they're quite literary and quite, psychologically grounded and that's what i like about the stories in this movie too now have you always been yeah from the moment i read the books uh, i've told the story you know i was such a fan of the book that like maybe 1987 there was a bookstore in santa monica i was a young i was like 20 years old or younger and i stood in line for two hours to get his autograph now that was his first american book signing that wow. day so he remembers it he doesn't remember me, but he remembers the day that, and I remember vividly waiting in line, meeting him, signed his name and drew a demon face, and I still have the book. And um, it's just so interesting and wonderful t for me that I was able to end up working with one of my iconic figures, you know, in my life. It's just kind of amazing. Now, I imagine. So you're no stranger, though, to the erotic in TV because, I mean, you did Salem. And yeah, that was a horror show, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, uh, that show was absolutely wonderful. I yes. lament the day it got canceled. I cannot believe I enjoyed yeah. the show. I wasn't expecting to like it. But dear God, man, that so was, do you think <laughs> after having gone through Salem, maybe Books of Blood was a little bit <laughs> easier for you to get a pass well, on some stuff? You know, Salem was, and I created Salem with Adam Simon. I really got a lot of my horror out of my on that one. And if, if you're a horror fan, that's a horror fan's horror show. Oh, my yeah. God. It's Absolutely. so wonderful. It's uh, 
particularly as you go get deeper into it, I think, I mean, there are homages to Mario Bava and everybody you can possibly imagine um, in that show. And it's a horror show. I used to call it The Exorcist Meets Wuthering Heights. Uh, <laughs> That's and, a perfect description. Yeah, because there's a romantic component to it. It's actually a show that should not work. I mean, how it's like, it was such a weird tonal balance, but the actors were wonderful. Janet Montgomery in the lead role was really made it work. Um, but I thought I got all my horror out of my on that, but, um, but I didn't. Um, and I wanted to direct the film and this opportunity came along and I kind of in deciding how to make this anthological three story structure work. I, I, the, to me, arguably the best anthology film ever made is Pulp Fiction. Now Pulp Fiction has horror components, but it's not horror per se. Um, but it's got a great anthological structure. And it is an anthology. But the stories don't rely on each other, but they cross-pollinate in just the right way. And that's how I modeled that. I kind of followed Tarantino. That, mm-hmm. I love that. And anything I read, I love just the little things, If even if it's a blatant crossover or just a simple little pass-through, just something like that, I love it. So whenever I was watching Books of Blood, I mean, as it was going through, it was like, all right, so what's this? Okay, what's this? But then eventually it's like, Oh, okay. Now I'm in. There, there was that moment. Was like, okay, now I'm ready to see. This is cool. I like this now. It, it, they did it. Uh, Rodriguez did it in Sin City. It's just yeah. it's little things. Yeah, I, and, I like and, and little not, things. Like and I, that. I didn't want to be too cute about it or anything. Just if it was organic and um. Oh, it was fantastic. The way yeah, everything that, just coalesced. Like, oh wow. Okay. How uh, how tough was it for you to get like? to be able to do the books of blood because this has been done i imagine barker has had offers to do this since he wrote them yeah and 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 though many several of his stories have been made into movies mm -hmm. one of them Mm -hmm. at the best of the movies Candyman was based on (laughs) (laughs) i i just said i'm sorry to interrupt i just said that before we even logged on tonight (laughs) talking about his movies i was like i dare say Candyman is probably his best film (laughs) and so, you know, I didn't want to touch those stories because they'd, be, they'd been done. Um, but, you know, in my first conversation with Clive, which was probably eight years ago, he said he never wanted to give up the title books. Like, that was his first publication. But he eventually decided to go, go with me on this journey. And it took a long time to make this deal. It was, we made the deal, then the deal went away. It took many years to kind of get the rights and work it all out with Clive. But um, we did, and we started work on the script a couple years ago, and um, took about a year to get the script where we wanted it, and then it took about a year to make the movie. So when you're adapting someone else's work, specifically someone you are had a big influence on you, like Clive Barker, how hard is it to toe the line between staying true to the original concept and still implementing your own ideas? That's a great question, um, and that's why I want people to know this work, everything in this movie, Clive and I concocted with Adam Simon, and this is a this is a Barkarian tale. Um, my job as a director was to not fuck up the script because we had a pretty <laughs> solid script, um, and it attracted some talented actors and crew members, and it was up to me to make sure that it was scary and that it held together, and that you know, particularly that sequence you mentioned earlier. You know, which is in the first story in the first book, 
um, I wanted to make sure it was done right, you know, and I don't know how else to put it, the right tone, the right, uh, pulling no pit punches with nudity or violence it has to have a blood, a lot of blood. Um, but I think, I think it came together, you know, I hope that people who see this movie who think Barker is just Hellraiser, um, cause that's my fear sometimes is that he's so closely associated with a kind of a cyberpunk splatter, splatter gore subgenre. But he's a lot, he's so much more than that too. Right. I think he really, I would thrill to be able to speak with him. But I, if you, the next time you talk with him, you can tell him I said, <laughs> I, like, and I mean, I'm dead serious. A book that changed my life. I think it was sixth grade. I bought The Thief of Always at the book fair. And as a kid, my generation, yeah, Barker was splatterpunk because if Books of Blood was 86, I was six years. So if I was sixth grade, that would put in 11, something like that around that time. So then The Thief of Always comes out. And I read that, and I bought it because it was Clive Barker, and I knew him from Hellraiser and Nightbreed. But The Thief of Always is one of the greatest fairy tales ever. Like, it's <laughs> it's damn funny talking about Barker. It's damn scary how good that book is how it just flows seamlessly into like a modern fairy tale of yeah. horror and so i mean you can but i just i would say if if you even think that he might have even be giving a hint that his fans only think he's you know with hellraiser you could tell him i said no thief of always or like the most dangerous game so no 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 but especially with my generation growing up because i'm not the only one that picked that book up from the book fair yeah because it was Clive Barker, and then reading it, and it ends up being a kid's book, and it was freaking good. So, I yeah. mean, it just... I'd be happy to hear that. And by the way, with his permission, I recorded all of these sessions, we, and maybe one day I'll publish a transcript of because they are the most... Everything that you could possibly hope and imagine that a conversation with him might be like, it was... Mm. They were deep conversation. The philosophy of horror, what is horror... Why did he only choose to write one horror collection? That's all. That was, that's really his only horror piece. He doesn't consider himself a horror writer per se. <laughs> um, and he'll be very happy to hear about this uh, thief of all ways. He'll be very happy to. Hear. Yeah, that one. I yeah. mean, that was like life changing. Because then I can see the there's the parallel. I mean, you, I can even see it in some of his stories in the books of blood. There's just there's slight little flourishes that he would add. And you even did that. It, there's a couple of segments in the movie. It just, it's the slightest of flourish, but it immediately takes it. I like how you said it was psychological because yeah, it immediately takes it from psychological and then you're reminded who this is. It's just, I love it. It, it. When you talk about psych, the psychology of the film, you're lulled into a false sense of, oh, what am I watching? And then, oh, that's right. You're watching a Clive Barker movie and this is why. Yeah, and cool. it just, I love those, those little things that he would even add, even in a kid's book he would add those forces. I'm glad you were able to actually keep that because there is a payoff. Again, kids playing along at home, watching the books of blood. As with a lot of slow burn or gritty psych thrillers, there's a bit of an investment, but unlike a lot of them, there is a payoff to them. Cool. Brennan, was Star Trek your first professional writing gig? Yes. Um, Star Trek, the next generation. So Season were you intimidated being involved with a show that has a cultural footprint as your first gig? <laughs> I was more in, at the time, this was in the fourth season, I, I started on uh, kind of between season three and four. And the, the next generation was just becoming a cultural phenomenon. It just aired a very famous cliffhanger um, called The Best of Both Worlds about the Borg. And, um, mm -hmm. and I was, but it, had, it hadn't broken out yet. 
in the way that it would. Um, I was more intimidated just about writing the show. I was freaked out at how these writers were doing this at all and so quickly and easily. Like, I'm like, I can't do this. But um, yeah, I was super intimidated beyond. Still, still am. It was, a hard show to, it was a fun show to do, but it was, you know, challenging. And then I, you know, I think I, I wrote over, over 130 episodes, not just of that show, but it, it never, it never got. So how, what's the transition been like for you going from the next generation to the Orville? Oh, well, but I did Star Trek. Uh, I was writing Star Trek for 15 straight years and um, worked on well over 300 episodes and all. Uh, then I took, I stopped and I started doing other kinds of shows. 24, another show with a yeah. when I came aboard. Um, and um, a show called Cosmos, another huge culture, kind of cult, cultural favorite that I had to make sure I didn't fuck up. <laughs> I'm noticing um, a pattern. Um, but I never <laughs> thought I'd be doing this, the kind of antho, kind of, anthological storytelling that Star Trek did, at least the Star Trek I was involved with. So when Seth MacFarlane asked me to join the Orville, I was, I was like, can I still do this? It's been a long time since I'd done it. And uh, not only can I still do it, it I just love it. I missed, I missed that kind of science fiction storytelling. I really missed it. Um, and we're okay. hopefully going to be resuming production on the third season so that oh, we can good. get out there. Um, but uh yeah, I love the. Orca. It has so much heart. It has so much heart, and you know, with Seth MacFarlane having this, you know, between Family Guy, satirical kind of a scary. Are you going to be just raking it across the coals to see such a wholesome and heartfelt tribute continuation? Is that we all love? It, it's it's awesome. Well, it, it, I'm glad you said that because I think some, it, the way the show was marketed, for instance, it was almost looked like it was Galaxy Quest or was going to satirize right. genre. That's what I thought and, it was. We were worried about that because actually it's a science fiction drama first and it had comedy in it. And it's uh, one of the reasons, I think it was our third episode, was kind of a gender reassignment drama. Quite tragic and um, tackled some hardcore issues. And we just wanted to say, this is the show. And will fans accept it? It's very earnest. I'm glad that you appreciate that, that aspect of it. It is heartfelt. It is optimistic. It isn't uh, cynical. And Seth no. correctly thought, and I agree with him, that's been missing from television since, since you know, it's not even really in, in the new Star Treks as much as I wish it was. There's not a lot of optimism and wholeheartedness <laughs> out there. Everything's just kind of dark and fucked up and cynical. And um, there was something missing. And that's why we did this show. Well, speaking of Seth MacFarlane and the Orville, what was it like to work with him in adapting Books of Blood? Because from oh. the outside looking in, it just seems like a mismatch almost. Well, oh, to my point about the Orville, you know, the Orville is a drama, and some of the best episodes have some really great storylines and um, aren't necessarily, quote-unquote, funny, you know, Uh so Seth is a, a, a wonderful drama writer. He has good instincts for any genre. Um, there's a great horror episode of the Orville in the third season, super scary, involving a new race of spider-like aliens. And uh, he's just talent, a talented writer, and, a, and a, just like a deeply talented writer, I think, can be good at any genre. So um, his help in developing this movie and pitching it with me, and, you know, I don't, Honestly, I don't know that it got made without him. Huh. 
So uh, Salem was, was. Oh, sorry, Daniel. Go ahead. No, no, no. I was I was just ruminating. Please go ahead. So Salem was one of my favorite shows when it was on the air. Can you just Great. talk a bit about how the idea for that creative approach of the witch trials witch trials came to you and did the characters ultimately wrap with the narratives you envisioned, even though you were kind of cut short there? Well, <clears throat> I, first of all, I'm glad to hear that you liked the show. It was a real work of, of passion. Um, I loved that show. Um, we didn't get, you know, it's funny because we were told well in advance that the fourth, the third season would be our last season. And it was okay because we had planned it. We were able to plan that as our last season mm -hmm. and kind of do a three-act structure so if you watch the show it's funny because the char the characters are doing are, a lot of them have just done these reversals um the mary turns into ann hale and ann hale turns into mary and mercy <laughs> lewis the ultimate victim becomes the, the ultimate torturer i mean it's just amazing how the characters we were able to conclude it that's how we wanted we would have concluded the show anyway so that wasn't so much a problem the idea uh, i got a call from a guy named Bert Salke, who's the head of Fox 21 television. And he said, I've got this amazing idea about the witch trials with a writer who's a movie guy, hasn't done any TV yet. Would you mind pairing with them? I read the material that Adam Simon had written and, and I'm just like, this guy's a brilliant writer and this is a great idea. The I basic idea for those who don't know, um, it turns out the witch trials are real. <laughs> or the, the, the witches are running the trials. Witchcraft is real, I should say. The witches are running the witch trials to their own end. And I just found that a like, very intriguing premise. And um, and from there, we just developed characters based on and inspired by historical characters. Mary Sibley, Janet's characters based on a real character. Some characters we combined into one character, but most of the magic, and that's another show where the, the magic was always grounded in nature. There were mm -hmm. no wands and big visual effects. Everything was just rooted in nature and and all of the horrors virtually all of the horrors depicted were taken from the transcripts of the actual rich trials all of them were recorded mm -hmm. all of them and you can read them you can read the the court transcriptions of what the accusations were and they're nuts <laughs> and they're weirder than anything we could have imagined and so right. we we had a great source material but i'm glad you liked the show it was so fun to do it was you know, it was a real pleasure. I feel really lucky to do it. I don't know where it is. It might be on Amazon. I think it, it may still be on Netflix. I'm not it, sure. It, it's on uh, Amazon Prime. It's on my uh, watch. Yeah, it's on Amazon Prime now. I right. saw when it yeah. hit it. I was like, oh, yeah, we got to dive back into this um, one. But I, I'm so glad you liked it. That means a lot to me. Thank you. You know, I'm skept you're skeptical at first going into any new horror series, but I, I remember it was, may have been at the end of the first episode or the beginning of the second. Forgive me if I'm wrong, but it's the scene where Mary goes into the woods and she, she, uh, the ritual happens and then she's pregnant. I'm just, I'm sold. I'm just like, yeah. I know where the show's steals. going. I'm in for the ride. She steals the baby. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was no it. Way. Or no, she doesn't steal. She gives up her baby. Yeah, she gives up her baby. Yeah, and it's later that the baby bump is gone. Yeah, the baby bump is No, I'm thinking of a later storyline where uh, a character steal uh, Anne Hale's. But um, yeah, it's it was good. It was it satisfied the horror fans. It's, it it had a kind of a, a little bit of a southern gothic feel. Um, oh, yeah. And, uh, and and the Native American stuff. Whenever it started throwing that yeah. in, I was like, oh, oh yeah, here we go. Yeah, <laughs> and all of that has a, it's a little bit of a historical. But it's not the History Channel, you know, so if you're looking for a history lesson, it's the wrong show. 
No, this is just all history entertainment. Oh, God, Stephen Lang, man. His character. Oh, just yeah. the way he had the knives and the cross-bladed under his or whatever he was talking to. He was putting the guy to question in the chair in the ship. He just draws a knife out, stabs it, leans in, just scratches his beard and says, the next time I ask you, I'm going to gut you and I'm going to strangle you with your own intestines. Now tell me what. I was like, Jesus Christ, okay. My kind of show. Yeah, and that was we, we it, that was on a basic cable station. Yeah, that was. And, uh, <laughs> and I might add, a, a station called WGN, where I think they were showing reruns of Matlock. <laughs> and stuff like that, and they were trying to launch it as a new network, which they did. And I can only imagine, like, the, some viewers at home thinking they're going to tune in to Diagnosis Murder, or Murder, she wrote, and on comes Salem, what the scene you're describing. And I, I always wondered if maybe that was a, a bit of a shock. I mean, kudos getting that on cable television. That's a, a accomplishment in itself. I, that's well, the guy, the guy running the network, Matt Chernus, he's a huge... He, huge genre fan and he he encouraged it because he knew that that sensationalistic aspect of the show which was organic to the show is what was going to make it successful you know mm -hmm. um they used to at the time bonkers tv was the phrase i believe the show that originated it 24 was the first show that started killing off its characters crazy twists every um either that, that or uh, lost you're right lost absolutely and um you know, we had to make sure we re were relevant. If you're going to do a horror show, you better do a real fucking horror show. and It better be as scary as you can make it. You're here. <laughs> you, touched, you touched on Twilight Zone earlier. Um, now, in my opinion, Rod Serling is the shining example of the epitome of a television writer, blurring the lines between host and creator. So what aspects of his work uh, jumped out to you, and do you have a favorite episode? So as a kid, Twilight Zone was in syndication, and I would just... I was obsessed with the storytelling, plain and simple. And I think that's what attracted a lot, a lot of people to Star Trek. It's just really good stories. And um, science fiction, it was horror, it was fantasy, it was sometimes straight drama. It was everything. It could be something different every week. I always saw Star Trek Next Generation as something of an anthology show. And it's true in the sense that you never really know what kind of story you're going to get. You're right. Um, and... I bought this book by Mark Scott Sacree called the, called the Twilight Zone Companion. It came out in the 80s, and I would sit. The first book of its kind I ever saw with synopsis, reviews, and behind the scenes, and I would just sit with every episode and <laughs> watch it and then read about it. And it and it was really Serling's writing and a couple of the other writers, too, on that show. That's why I think it's really hard to, to reboot the Twilight Zone, because without Serling... It's nearly impossible. It, it almost is. And it, it would be like doing Black Mirror without uh, Charlie Booker and his partner. I can't remember right now, but there's a voice to the Twilight Zone. And, uh, but it was, it was his writing that attracted me. And the knowledge that a writer was behind the show. Right. Not an actor, not a director like movies, but that the, the, the writer was the feature. The writer was, the writing was the star of the show. And mm -hmm. that, uh, that appealed to me. He was one of my biggest, like, with, mainly with the night gallery. I'd always had the pipe dream of sure. resurrecting the night gallery and, you know, giving that the modern update. Because that was just like you said, with the Twilight Zone, the night gallery. Somebody too. should, you know. Somebody yeah. should. Yeah, because um, his stuff, again, he, he is such a good writer. And my favorite episode, look, it's really hard to pick one. But there's one, my favorite is an episode, of course, I can't remember the title. But it's not one that is very well known. And it's a, it's, it might be called Night Caller. 
gosh, I can't remember, but it's about a little boy whose grandmother gives, gives him a toy telephone, a tiny toy telephone as a birthday gift. And one day, not long after that, grandmother, grandma dies. Oh yeah. And a little five-year-old boy starts getting calls or you think he's getting calls from grandma on this little toy phone. And grandma's saying, come join me. And you never hear grandmother's voice, which makes it all the more chilling. And ultimately the boy drowns himself because grandma told him to. And um, while the boy is being resuscitated by paramedics, the father is on this silly little toy telephone that he can barely hold with one hand it's so small to his ear, begging the grandmother to return the boy. And it's such an absurd image him, this adult talking to a toy telephone, but it completely works. It's chilling. It's, it's risky. Killing a kid? That wasn't done on TV. Yeah, that was some dark Suicid- shit. Suicidal? A five-year-old drowns himself? This was an intense hour of TV about grieving and death, though in this case, the griever was the dead. And um, an amazing half-hour television, but I can't remember the title, so... Hey, it happened. Google it. I think, I think you're. <laughs> I think you're right. I think it might be night homes. Yeah, I think so. It's a great one. So you've talked about Barker. Uh, you guys working together on the script. Was he hands on on the set at all? No, he wasn't hands on on the set. Simply, main reason being, he's locked away in his Hollywood Hills home working on his latest novel. Nice. And we shot the movie in Nova Scotia, Canada. Huh. And, but he certainly saw a cut of the movie. Has been involved in. And there were times I would call him during pre-production or production asking about certain things. Um, I wanted to make sure, like, I depict the dead. Um, how were the dead going? I know how they were described in the book, but, they, but they're not totally clearly described. And I'm like, are the dead going to look like zombies? Are they going to look like they just crawled out of the grave? What are these dead people surrounding the char- Simon, char- Simon character going to look like? And I really wanted something original, and I call, would call Clive. We would talk about it, send me references, sketches. We kind of decided on a mannequin, dealt with creatures with almost doll-like eyes and very kind of plasticky skin. For some reason, it was super creepy. And some of them have like a nose broken off and Mm -hmm. something that I've never seen. I'll give it that. Yeah, it was unique. So when writing for a major... Go ahead. Go ahead, Angelique. No, I was just saying it was very effective. Oh, yeah. When you're writing for these major shows, what's the hierarchy like amongst the writers? How many channels is your idea going through before it's on the screen? Well, it depends on the show. You know, on Star Trek, I don't, I think I could count on one hand how many times I got a studio note. Um, it was me and Rick Berman, who was the ultimate boss on the show. We were left alone. In the 15 years I did Star Trek, I was in shock when I went in the real world and got notes from studios and networks and stuff. Um, so, uh, but I was fortunate on 24 that we had a lot of autonomy. By the time I got the show, it was a success. So we had a lot of autonomy there. If I'm the showrunner of the show, it's usually going to be me who has the final say on scripts and stuff. Um, with the Orville, it's Seth, who's the, who's the ultimate say, because um, he created the show, the main showrunner. Um, but it's always a collaboration in, with the writers. If you're lucky to have a good group of writers and it's it's a true collaboration well brandon i think we've kept you long enough and if no one else has anything daniel you got your hands up yep brandon sell us something send send all the kids listening at home we have books of blood coming out yes but you know when where and the who and you know where to send them so send them somewhere books of blood the movie um comes out on hulu october 7th and um check it out 
because I think you guys tell me that you're giving me my first reviews here, but uh, um, I think it's pretty good. I think it's, I think it's scary. It's creepy and will make you think a little bit. I think the, uh, and it has a great ending and it's hard to, it's hard to get a good ending these days. That it does. Yes. If, if you want the, I'll, all right, I'll give you the straight up honest review because, and that's just how I do it. Straight up honest. Oh. It takes an investment. It's a little bit slow. Stick with it because everything you invest in, in the first part of it, you're going to get that. There is a payoff. A lot of movies don't pay it off, but this one does. So. Angelique, what's your, what's your, what's your review? I loved it. Literally the credits rolled. Rewound it and started it over. <laughs> I I had to get back in there because it, it again it's that that psychological and just the I don't want to spoil anything but I know that's the, the hardest part I yeah. can't spoil it I just, well, just when does, stick when, with it when you love it come out? when does this come out I'm tomorrow gonna, oh yeah. tomorrow yeah. No. <laughs> I'm going to put it up on the I think we have to we have to we have to put it up on the fifth we have to. Yeah, we have to. There's an embargo, and yeah, we get. Week. I get shot if I don't put it up on the fifth from your agent. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, uh, this piece, what I love about this podcast and the interview we just did was that it was a discussion, and I'm. I know I'm talking to true horror fans. That's thank you. I, yeah, that's, and that's all this it, is. Man. We just want to chat. Man. <laughs> you, you have good. I mean, you know your you know your stuff, and it's 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 and you have great backgrounds. There's a guy in a closet. <laughs> Daniel's in a closet. Justin's in the well, those red drapes. Yeah, Justin yeah. in this his is parlor room. study. <laughs> and Angelique looks to be in a surrounded by uh, shower curtains made of skulls. That's her problem. Uh, they're bed sheets, but this is my closet. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have uh, one final one final question for yeah. you, Brandon. Yes. I'm the I'm the fiendish foodie here of Monsters, Madness, and Magic. And every guest, I like to ask, what is your go-to movie snack? Oh, my go-to movie snack. Well, I'm going to be really boring and say popcorn, but with lots of <laughs> lots of butter. My man, I knew yeah. I liked you. Uh, and and hopefully layered. If it's a good person who cares about their job, who actually cares, they'll layer the they'll put some popcorn in butter. Popcorn, butter, butter, shake popcorn. it a little bit, and, shake it a little bit. And yeah. then um, a, hopefully an ice cold Diet Coke and some Twizzlers. Okay. <laughs> Sounds like a date. Twizzlers. Or All right. the other one, there's Twizzlers and Red Vines. Red there Vines. There is no other one. I, I, I'm a Red Vine fan, <laughs> but Twizzlers will do. <laughs> okay, good. Have you ever tried the straw trick? Now, if they don't layer your popcorn, get no. a straw. And if it's you know, your self-serve butter, put the straw on the butter nozzle and then stick it in deep into the popcorn and you can layer it. Listen to this. Look Damn. Let me that write that made, down. That made this whole experience worthwhile. Dude, where's the <laughs> put on the MacGyver theme, man? I need that in the background yeah. for this, dude. That is serious shit. Dude. You've been holding out yeah. on us this whole time, Angelique. <laughs> I, real, I just I shoved my face in it, eat a lot of it, and then shook it around like I did it at a Godzilla when we were there. I shake it around a lot and then dump some more in there at a time. Damn. Nothing sure. beats popcorn. I mean, not, really, it's, I miss going to the movies, man. I really, it's like the yeah. thing I miss the most, really. I just, I hope they come back. I think I they're going they to. Yeah. I, I, I really, really feel that, you know, we, as a people, that is our one experience where we're, you know, in our own Perception-wise, but we're with everybody. Just oh, feed on it. Every, I yeah. remember every movie I've ever seen. 
practic and where I was and what the audience reaction was like. And when I read little articles here and there, like there's no difference. Of course there's a difference. You know? There's a big difference. Uh, like I wish that Books of Blood was seen in theaters. I, I won't get the experience of sitting in a theater with an audience. It, it's opening Scream Fest here mm -hmm. in LA, which I'm very proud of being a longtime <laughs> fan of that film festival. But I think it's going to be a drive-in and it's not, and I'm not going to be creeping from car to car to see how they're liking the movie. <laughs> you can. You might get your glimpses. <laughs> I mean, you, not with that attitude you won't. I mean, sure, you go from car to car. <laughs> um, anyway, I appreciate your time, guys. Yeah. Really. Uh, thank oh, you, man. We appreciate you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks a lot. And we'll have Anything you else? Anything. I mean, yeah, you're always welcome, man. Anything comes up, anything comes up, promo, or just top. Well, if I'm talk when I'm in that, when I'm in your area again, I'll look you up. Please, all right, we'll be here. <laughs> cool. Please do, man. Seriously, yeah, you take care, okay? You too. Be all safe, right, have guys. A good night. All right, we will. Yeah. Good night.